When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. You start a conversation, you can't even finish it. You're talking a lot, but you're not saying anything. David Byrne and his oversized suit return to movie screens this month as Stop Making Sense celebrates its 40th anniversary. Our theater owner is prepared to handle the spontaneous dancing in the aisles that surely will accompany these screenings, Josh. And what about everyone cosplaying in those oversized suits? Yeah. Where do you get one of those, huh? <laughs> Haven't found one. This week, we'll share our top five music docs, and we've also got a sacred cow review of Martin Scorsese's The Last Waltz. That film, which documented the band's farewell concert, turns 45. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Screening films. 16mm prints, usually bad copies, all night long in that house on Mulholland. I threw Rossellini and Visconti and Fuller at him. He preferred Bergman, Cocteau, and Buñuel. He loved Buñuel. An excerpt there from a recently published tribute from Martin Scorsese to his longtime friend and creative partner, Robbie Robertson. Robertson passed away in August. He was a founding member and the primary songwriter and guitarist for the band, he went on to work with Scorsese as a music supervisor and consultant, starting with Raging Bull in 1980. He composed the score for Scorsese's upcoming Killers of the Flower Moon. And it was Scorsese who documented the band's Thanksgiving 1976 farewell concert. It was released in 1978 as The Last Waltz, and it's considered by many to be one of the great concert films. We will have a lot more to say about that concert film later in the show, Josh, and for the sake of this show's future, I hope you have some positive things to say. <laughs> wow. Putting putting a lot of weight Pressure. on this Stakes. discussion. I'm all about stakes. We'll find out. I mean, yeah, a blind spot for me, yes. this one. And I'm happy to have the chance to not only fill that in, but get a little bit closer to being a Martin Scorsese completist. If you are asking yourself, why aren't we just talking about Stop Making Sense with it coming back to theater as well? We did it not too long ago. We talked about Stop Making Sense back in 2020, along with This is Spinal Tap and Purple Rain. That was part of our 8 from 84 series. Before we get to business, would you please consider giving us a rating or a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts? Your support helps us reach new listeners. We do want to thank Apple Podcast users Tony from Sweden, Alex Orlando, RRL Songlian, 
Lotokheim. Love reading, sure. love reading these names. Z.E. Salazar in Brazil. That one was easier. Dylan Dom in Blair, Nebraska. All of these folks wrote us very kind reviews. Here's a bit from Dylan's. In May 2018, near the end of my first year of law school, I searched for movie podcasts on Spotify. One of the first titles to pop up was a podcast about The Lord of the Rings. And since that is one of my favorite movie series, I decided to give it a listen. That was episode 681 of Film Spotting, and from then on, I was hooked. To quote Forrest Gump, it's funny what a man recollects. And thinking back on the last five years of listening to Film Spotting, it's funny how many memories I can connect to a specific episode of the show. Whether it was working my summer job mowing lawns and listening to Adam interview Bo Burnham about eighth grade, or going for a run through the desolate campus at the University of Nebraska in the early days of COVID, while the guys gave out their Christopher Nolan Review Awards. Josh and Adam have become like friends I look forward to hearing from each week. Perhaps the thing I love most about the show is that they truly care about educating their listeners about the world of cinema. It's not just a recap of the latest big studio movies, but through their marathons and Sacred Cow reviews, it's almost like taking a film studies class. Before I started listening, I'd never heard of the likes of Paul Schrader or Jane Campion or seen any Terrence Malick movies. But thanks to Film Spotting, I've been exposed to so many classics and hidden gems I may never have been aware of without them. I'm thankful for all the top fives, madness brackets, and hours of great discussion, and I'd recommend Film Spotting to anyone who loves movies. Educating our listeners, and more importantly, maybe educating ourselves, A-plus for Dylan there, A-plus for everybody who was kind enough to go to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. Another way you can support Film Spotting? Join the Film Spotting family. You get to listen early and ad free. You get a weekly newsletter. And you either, or you can get both, depending on your tier, you can get a monthly bonus show or you can get complete archive access. In August, we dove in kind of a live taping with Film Spotting Advisory Board members. We dove into the Pantheon, talked about its future. September, well, we have to record it next week. We're not totally sure what we're doing. Sam has suggested maybe we should use that as an opportunity to finally decide the fates of Midnight Run and Dazed and Confused, some of the sacred cows we've talked about recently. Josh, we'll figure it out. But if anyone has an idea, any family member out there would love us to get into a certain topic, please do email us feedback at filmspotting.net. And everything you need to know about the Film Spotting family is at filmspottingfamily.com. Let's get into this week's topic, Josh, with The Last Waltz and Robbie Robertson's unfortunate passing. And of course, as we mentioned, Stop Making Sense, returning to theaters. We thought it was time to share our top five music documentaries. We did consider at first maybe just doing specifically concert films like The Last Waltz, like Stop Making Sense, decided to broaden it a little bit, open it up to any documentary that is about music, is about musicians. I'm sure between our lists, we'll cover a few of the different ways documentarians have approached this subject matter. It was tough eventually to weed it down to just five. I think I did end up leaning mostly towards concert docs. There's one definitely on my list that wouldn't have made it if I was super strict about that. And a couple of them do take forays away from the stage. Um, but, you know, you need that even in a concert doc, even in something like The Last Waltz, we see how um, you have these other elements that bring some context, some background information, and maybe some other opportunities for artistic flourishes that uh, the filmmaker is otherwise restricted to what's happening on the stage, right? And how they can capture that. Mm -hmm. And by broadening it, yeah, we're maybe opening the door to some ways that filmmakers um, put their own stamp on the genre. Let's dive in. 
What's your number five? All right. My number five is Dave Chappelle's Block Party. Now, before he joined the ranks of comedy's problematic figures, that's where he is now. Totally, totally get that. Dave Chappelle put together this concert in Brooklyn, and I described it in my 2006 review, perhaps ironically, now in hindsight, but I described it as inflammatory yet inclusive. So that last quality, it might have fallen away in the years since when it comes to Chappelle, but as a musical document, it still applies to this music documentary, uh, Dave Chappelle's Block Party, and he even describes it in the film as the concert I've always wanted to see. So this includes artists like Mostef, Erica Badu, Kanye West, <clears throat> uh, The Roots, and uh, a reunion at the time of the Fuji. You have something in your throat there? John? Yeah, Kanye, you know, he's more of an issue than Chappelle at the moment, right? Yes. Way more. So I, I get that as well, but still watching, revisiting clips of this and some of these performances, I have to highlight his rendition of Jesus Walks with John Legend and a marching band. So I think that lineup speaks for itself, but what makes this distinct for me is also Chappelle as this giddy host who's just so over the moon that this thing has come together as ramshackle as it is. And he's doing interviews with the stars, of course, but he's also hanging out in this neighborhood. He, I think of this interview with a couple of ancient hippies who happen to live on the same block and really have no idea what's going on. The whole thing is loose. Uh, there's a sense of camaraderie to it. And I think some of that probably comes from the director here, Michelle Gondry. No stranger to ramshackle dreams. He did Be Kind, Rewind, The Science of Sleep, and then, you know, a bit more polished, I would say, a great one, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. So, yeah, this pick comes with some caveats. Chappelle and West totally understand if people just don't want to make time for either of them these days. But still, as a document of a more promising time for both of them, as well as just a different sort of concert doc in general, I'm going to start my list with Dave Chappelle's Block Party. That is a wonderful performance from Kanye that you singled out. And also, thank you, Ramshackle Dreams is going to be the name of my next band. All right. You got it. It's all yours. Well said. My number five music documentary is from director Sam Jones, who has come up this year on the show with another revealing making of an album documentary. He's the director of Jason Isbell running with our eyes closed. My pick is I am trying to break your heart. The chronicle of the making of Yankee hotel Foxtrot from the band Wilco. And in the trailer, you hear music critic and fellow podcaster slash radio host on WBEZ, Greg Cott say, it's not a VH one behind the music story. It's not a drugs groupie celebrity kind of story at all. This band's story is the music. And he is so right. Just today, rewatching clips reminded me how incredible the album that this film documents the making of is. For people who don't feel the same way about the music that I do, is the documentary still compelling? I don't know, but it should be. It isn't a drugs or groupies or celebrity kind of story, but there's there's plenty of drama. You've got a fairly established band. This is their fourth album, I believe. 
It's a fairly, up to this point, straight ahead kind of alt rock band. And here they're taking a huge musical swing. That's enough of a decent narrative through line. Add in the fact that they are taking this ambitious step and their label hates it. And they hate it so much, they cut them from the label. Only to end up eventually signing, the band eventually signs with the subsidiary of their previous label. They're both subsidiaries of the same unit. So as the joke goes, they basically got paid twice to make the same album that one of the groups rejected. And if that's not enough, two of the key creative forces in the group, Jeff Tweedy and Jay Bennett, are not seeing eye to eye at all. And that results in Bennett, during the making of this movie, Bennett being expelled from the band. So you have all this tension and conflict, which you can see is taking its toll on Tweedy, but there are no major fireworks either that I recall. It all sort of unfolds very plaintively, like Wilco and their music. Not all of their music, mind you, but especially some of the songs on this album. And a song like the opening track, the opening track of this movie, the opening credits is one of my favorite parts of this film, where you have this kind of grungily beautiful two-minute black and white sequence. The whole film is in black and white. It's Tweedy driving through Chicago, going to rehearsal, wherever the band is playing or recording. And most of it, you're just seeing his point of view of the city. You're not really aware of that until much later into the montage, that it's him driving. But you're getting his perspective. And the song that's playing over this is the album's first track and the movie's title track, I Am Trying to Break Your Heart. But it's not the funkier, eclectic album version. It's this acoustic version, sounds more like a demo of just Tweety and his guitar. And you would almost think it's this earnest love song, except for that undertow of pain and aggression in the declaration, I am trying to break your heart. I am trying to break your heart. I am trying to break your heart. Still, I would be lying if I said it wasn't easy. I am trying to break your heart. It nicely sets up, it nicely encapsulates the core pain that's actually at the center of this film. And also this excitement, this excitement around the fact that they are doing something new, that they are being more adventurous with their music. And fortunately, Josh, things work out in the end. Yankee Hotel Foxtrot ends up being their most successful album to date. It's the one that most critics look back on and still hail as a masterpiece and one of the best of that period. And I feel that way as well, which is also a reason why I love I'm Trying to Break Your Heart so much. Love that album. Love Wilco. And this was next up on my homework list that 
I unfortunately didn't get to. So can't comment myself, but it makes me think I did hear from one of my favorite music writers, Eric Danielson. Uh, he writes actually for the uh, Columbia Daily Tribune, and he was suggesting this to me, saying you got to catch up with this one if you can before making your list and uh, found his note here. He just said it's one of the great creative process docs. I've ever seen, and Eric's seen way more of these documentaries than I have. So so I believe him, and I believe you. All right, at number four, I don't know, maybe should have asked this question at the top, but it seems to me that it's right that this list is going to lend itself more to personal taste, maybe. Just the fact that music is mm -hmm. being the main ingredient, I feel like um, that's where I was drawn, to maybe giving some leeway to the documentaries simply because I loved the music so much. And so this is a personal one at number four, Rattle and Hum, 1988, U2. It's personal because this is not a beloved music doc. I know it's had that reputation pretty much since it came out and has stayed that way, especially for U2 detractors. But for me, to have this movie come out in 88, there was no way it wasn't going to be formative. I mean, this is when I was just seriously getting into music, really choosing what I was going to spend my hard-earned lawn mowing money on. What, what tapes am I going to buy, Adam? And so I would actually buy something like R.E.M.'s Green Album or U2's Joshua Tree, some of the first music I actually owned. And so Rattle and Hum, you know, not only the album follow-up to Joshua Tree, but this music documentary of that tour, of the Joshua Tree Tour across America, chronicled the band's performances and collaborations as well with the likes of Bob Dylan, B.B. King, uh, the New Voices of Freedom Gospel Choir, also gave us one of the great U2 songs, Desire. What's this film about? It's sort of a, a musical journey, really. You know? <laughs> now, you can tell from the lack of an answer there and really the lack of participation, the band was in a bit of a smug phase. And that, that was one of the complaints about the movie overall, that that was kind of just coming off of them and coming off of the screen. And probably because of that, Rattle and Hum barely cracked Rolling Stones. One of the one of the articles I tracked down to help me formulate this list was Rolling Stones' 70 Greatest Music Documentaries. And again, I think it might be the last title on that list. It's definitely near the end. But Tim Grierson did offer this defense in his blurb on it. At the time of its release, this documentary of U2's Joshua Tree Tour was lambasted for its overly reverent, self-important tone. Now, with hindsight, Rattle and Hum can be seen properly as an honest portrait of the Irish quartet, whose holy quest was to change the world through rock and roll. Allow the band's piousness and Americana obsessions to turn you off, and you'll miss an intriguing look at a band adjusting to a global superstar status they haven't relinquished since. So that's Tim Grierson, and I'd also argue, you know, that in retrospect, looking at it now, you know, Rattle and Hum captures what was so essential and exciting about Octune Baby and then the Zoo TV tour, you know, that was just a few years later. And you see a band here in Rail and Hum in desperate need of reassessment and reinvention. The, you know, the artistic talent is there, but yeah, you can see they've, they've hit a wall 
with who they were. And we get them busting through that wall and that process starting here, but eventually busting through with Octune Baby. So aside from the great music, you know, a concert doc on a band this big is going to need some iconic visuals. And I think we get that here from the director, Phil Joanno and cinematographers Robert Brinkman and Jordan Cronin with. They mix black and white and color film footage, and visually they're really continuing in the vein of Anton Corbain's photos for Joshua Tree. Cronin with, incidentally, he uh, worked on the likes of Blade Runner and mm-hmm. the Talking Heads concert doc Stop Making Sense, which might just come up later. But for now, I've got Rattle and Hum at number four. <laughs> What's the film about? It's a musical, <laughs> <laughs> No, it's about music. I hope. At least that's what you said it was going to be about. <laughs> that inarticulateness that you see, that perhaps willful inability to articulate what their music's about and what they're trying to do as a band that will connect nicely to an upcoming pick of mine. And the other thing I'll say about that desire scene is even though they are performing for the camera, the vibe is they're rehearsing. It's not It's not in front of any kind of audience. And yet there is Bono in all of his glory. He's not just standing there singing. He is giving it every second oh, he's every peacocking. of insouciance. He is just <laughs> glorious, isn't he? It's incredible. And just, yeah, how young they look too is, is it, it makes you feel not so young. I'll just say that. Sure. Well, for my number four, I'll start by saying the Oscars, as we often bemoan, don't usually get it right, somewhat notoriously when it comes to best documentary feature. But in 2016, they did. This film won the best documentary Oscar, beat out, among other films, Joshua Oppenheimer's Very Good, The Look of Silence, and another very good music documentary, Liz Garbus's What Happened, Miss Simone. Definitely recommend that if you haven't seen it. But this film is Amy. Directed by Asif Kapadia, who came onto my radar in 2010 when he made Senna, which was one of my top 10 films of that year. Another documentary about a legendary artist, you could say, who died tragically, died too young. Formula One driver Ayrton Senna, he was 34. Amy Winehouse was just 27. And the same approach I loved in Senna is the one he takes with Amy. It's not so uncommon now, but it felt very new and vital to me in 2010, and it was certainly a departure from most documentaries I had seen, and certainly most music documentaries I had seen. This is one that relies completely on archival footage to produce what he has called, quote-unquote, true fiction. So he's acknowledging that even though it's a documentary, he's, of course, telling a story, there is a narrative, there is a construct to this, but... It is all actual footage. It's home movies. It's performance footage. It's behind the scenes recording. It's friends. It's family members. It's Amy. It's everyone just shooting footage that he was able to get his hands on. And they're shooting at a time when smartphones weren't ubiquitous. And yet he had this incredible trove to cull together. And another choice he makes is to let her lyrics tell the story. Literally, the lyrics often appear on screen, handwritten. And it feels like you're getting access to her innermost thoughts. You're reading her diary. And that, of course, supports the overall confessional nature of the music. She would tell me stories about Blake. 
and this tempestuous, extreme relationship. That first day she wrote back to black all the lyrics and the melody in two or three hours. To admit, in 2006, I think it was when she broke out with the Back to Black album. I, I didn't get the Amy Winehouse phenomenon, but I also didn't devote any energy to trying to get it. It was just sort of popular music. I heard the songs on the radio. I could appreciate it as catchy, but that was kind of it. I don't know about you, Josh. Then I watched this documentary about 10 years later, and without anyone in the film, because there are no talking heads, without anyone pronouncing it, or contextualizing her greatness for you, you just witness it. And it's undeniable. It's undeniable that she had and was a singular voice. You mentioned the Rolling Stone top 70 music docs, which I also took a look at. Vulture did a top 50. Our friend Noel Murray wrote that piece, and he had Amy at number 20. He said, what's most heartbreaking about Amy is that all its previously unseen footage shows a complex young woman that the public never really got to know because it was easier both for the singer and the tabloids to sell a simpler story of reckless self-indulgence. And one of the feelings I came away with, and I know others have expressed this similarly, you'll hear a word that will often come up after people experience this film. You come away feeling a certain complicity in it all. Yes. Even if, of course, you were never directly or even really indirectly involved in exploiting her, you're just very aware of the narrative that was created around her and how easy it was for me as an individual simply to accept that. And the documentary shatters that. Yeah, definitely my experience. You know, I, it, it is, in a sense, a cinematic shaming that is due you know i think the movie does that by showing us there there were friends and family who's who stood by if not enabled um you know her and i think we are included in this adam that was my experience as well even if it was just to like laugh at a punchline that you know mm -hmm. a comedian maybe right. made about her erratic behavior i was you know it sounds like similar definitely listen to her um pretty common even today you know to hear her songs being played somewhere in our house but didn't really do a deep dive into her background or her story until I saw this documentary and then, you know, did feel bad about not doing mm -hmm. that. But instead just, I guess it's not even so much that I didn't do that, but that I did just accept the narrative that was That's being it. presented. Right. And I yeah, think this movie, yeah, th this movie rightly challenges um, having a relationship like that to musical artists. That's a good word. It challenges that because you see the footage of Jay Leno or whatever making cracks on The Tonight Show. I don't think Jay Leno's responsible for Amy Winehouse's death. Right, right. I don't think the movie is suggesting that. And I can't even say that I laughed at any of those jokes when or if I saw them. But the acceptance of them. And the acceptance of them to an extent that they were, they were just harmless rather than seeing them as part of this larger narrative and the destructiveness 
of that, that's something the movie definitely made me realize. All right, number three, I have Summer of Soul. And I don't think I'm going to spend a lot of time on this one. We, we've we talked about it quite a bit on the show. It actually made, I had forgotten this till I looked it up, but it made all four of our 2021 top 10 list. That was a year-end show we did uh, with Michael Phillips and Dana Stevens. And before that, we had previously given it a full review on the show as well. So in case you hadn't heard any of those conversations and aren't familiar briefly, this is Musician Questlove's rescue project, really, is how I describe it. Uh, It's a compiling of footage from the Harlem Cultural Festival of 1969 that had sat largely unseen for 50 years. So this is who we're talking about here. Stevie Wonder, Nina Simone, Sly and the Family Stone, Gladys Knight and the Pips, Mahalia Jackson, B.B. King, The Fifth Dimension, Pop Staples and the Staples Singers, and that includes a very young Mavis Staples. As a matter of fact, there was more talk about this at our rap party for Best Music Moment. I, I know I had Mavis and Mahalia singing together for my pick. So the footage is great, obviously, but what really makes Summer of Soul distinct uh, that I want to emphasize are the contemporary interviews, yes, with some of the artists, but how about those ones with regular folks who Questlove tracked down, who remember attending the festival when, when they were younger. And this is one of them, Musa Jackson, who went to the fest as a child. I was a little kid. I remember being with my family, walking around the park, and as far as I could see, it was just black people. This was the first time I'd ever seen so many of us Families, fathers, mothers, kids running around. I was one of those kids. Beautiful, beautiful women, beautiful men. It was like seeing royalty. There are other interviews that are incredibly moving in this way, and they just work as beautiful companion pieces to to the brilliant music so summer of soul i've got at number three yeah i like that fifth dimension clip as well just because i remember spending a fair amount of time during our review on the redemption of that band being one of the really fun moving storylines from summer of soul and making connections here with other topics we're discussing This is the second appearance of Questlove so far on your list. He pops up in the Jesus Walks performance in Block Party and Mavis Staples appearing as well, quite memorably, in The Last Waltz. My number three music documentary is, well, I'll not attempt to imitate the central figure, and I'll just give you my favorite exchange, my favorite bit of dialogue from that artist in this film. Are you going to see the concert tonight? Are you going to hear it? Okay, you hear it and see it, and it's going to happen fast, and you're not going to get it all. And you might even hear the wrong words, you know? And then afterwards, I won't be able to talk to you afterwards. I got nothing to say about these songs I write. I mean, I just write them. I don't have to say anything about them. I don't write for any reason. There's no great message. I mean, if you want to tell other people that, go ahead and tell them, but I'm not going to have to answer to that. That's the infamous Bob Dylan exchange with a Time Magazine reporter in D.A. Pennebaker's seminal 1967 artist on tour documentary, Don't Look Back. Pennebaker followed Dylan to England. He was touring the country in 1965. And we get 
sort of fly on the wall footage. I'll talk more about that in a second. We get scenes of Dylan with the media interacting occasionally with with fans, maybe more at a distance. Definitely a lot of interactions with his entourage, including Joan Baez, who he was in a relationship with at the time. And the importance or the significance of this film, it's significant as a film and as a documentary of this artist and kind of setting a template for other films like it that would follow. But the relevance is heightened with the benefit of hindsight. It's this 1965 tour. By the time the movie's released, this all happens basically right after the tour ends, Dylan decides to go electric. In 1966, the folk protest icon sells his soul. In 66, he plays three electric songs at the Newport Folk Festival. And then about 10 months later, after releasing Blonde on Blonde, that's when he gets called a Judas by an angry fan in Manchester, England, because he's playing an electric set, an all-electric set. And Josh, of course, who is he playing that electric set with? Well, now you've seen The Last Waltz, and you know that that band was the band, though at the time they were called The Hawks, because they had just come off the road from playing with Ronnie Hawkins. That, that iconoclastic impulse in the Manchester scene, in Going Electric, in the dialogue I shared, that impulse to challenge expectations, but not just challenge them, to make us question what's really driving those expectations. Why do we need to put Dylan or any artist on this mantle and just hope they'll stay put and deliver what we think we need from them? It's really at the heart of Dylan's entire career in music and at the heart of this film. And why I love that exchange with the Time Reporter so much is it makes me consider how easy it would have been for Dylan. Maybe not easy for him because it's so fundamentally not who he is, but how easy it would be for most of us to get caught up in that, to play into the image that others have built for you, embrace the adulation and the grandiosity of being this folk messiah label. And it really wouldn't have even been that hard. Like he wouldn't have had to be overly eloquent and constantly state his message in interviews. He just could have kind of sat back and let others impose it on him and just not denied it. And of course, he can't help himself. He has to deny it. He says, emphatically, I got nothing to say about these songs I write. I mean, I just write them. I don't have anything to say about them. I don't write for any reason. He's basically saying, I owe you nothing. And I believe him. I agree with him. I didn't see this documentary until I think 2006 as part of a film spotting marathon. And it, it really did completely alter the way I think about artists and my own desire to put them in a box or demand of them who or what I think that they should be. I also think that Pennebaker realized something about Dylan, something that Dylan himself realized, which is the more famous he got, this whole notion of celebrity is just an absurd dance. It's all artifice. It's all performance, just as much, if not more, than the performance happening on the stage. And you've got Pennebaker, who's coming out of this fly-on-the-wall school of documentary. Except here, he's making no attempts to work invisibly. He's showing you the strings a little bit. This isn't a case of capturing Dylan in these really private, reflective moments. 
No, he's going to make you aware of the camera. It's going to be noticeable. It's going to be crammed into confined spaces and jiggling about like in the back of a car one night after Dylan comes off the stage and he's in there with his manager, Albert Grossman, and other members of his entourage. And he gets a little focused on a certain word that's being thrown around about them. They've started calling you an anarchist. Ooh. Papers, that's the word now. Anarchist. Yeah. Bravo. Yeah. Kidding. What papers are you oh, saying? Two or three. Today, anarchist. yeah. Just because you don't offer any solution. Kidding. <laughs> Chris. Anarchist. Yeah. Give me a cigarette. Give the anarchist a cigarette. <laughs> Dylan kind of can't let it go. But not because I think at all that he's offended by it or takes it seriously. He's he's amused more than anything at this criticism, if you will. And I think he's really amused by the word choice, the way the way a great writer might. I love how it just lingers with him throughout that entire scene. You see the cuts and you know that he's coming back to it over some period of time. But what you get with that film is a certain inscrutability. And this goes back to what you were saying about you 2 I don't think they're reflecting it quite the way Dylan is, but that, that inability or that lack of desire to explain themselves to other people and to let the music stand for itself, that's, that's really what Dylan does here. So Bob Dylan also popping up a lot on this show. I mean, oh, yeah. he's in Rattle and Hum and, of course, The Last Waltz, too. We'll share our final two picks later in the show Picks, clips, and former top fives, you can find all of those at filmspotting.net slash lists. His name was Henry Sugar. I think people ought to know a bit about what he has done for the world. Sound the jangly pastel alarms, Josh. A new Wes Anderson is dropping. <laughs> is that a thing? Yeah, yeah. What a year. It is huh? now. Two Wes Anderson projects in one year. Great time to be alive. Anderson's 39-minute film, The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar, comes to Netflix on Wednesday, September 27th. It's a Roald Dahl adaptation. It's Anderson's second after the fantastic Mr. Fox. And it features, I suppose, a pretty decent cast. Not only is he reuniting with Grand Budapest Ray Fiennes, he's got Benedict Cumberbatch, he's got Dev Patel, and Ben Kingsley. We were hoping to have thoughts on the wonderful story of Henry Sugar next week on the show. Sounds like you did a little bit of recon and maybe that's not going to be the case. I mean, Netflix being a little stingy with the early access. I, I don't know why that would be. I mean, why why use a practice that's generally used for terrible films, hide them from critics? Come on, let us see this thing so we can talk about it. I'm hoping that'll still work out and we can address it on next week's show. Yeah, it might have to be the show after. We're also planning to see and talk about the new one from John Carney, the director behind Once and Sing Street and Begin Again. His new one, Flora and Son, hits Apple TV Plus on September 29th. And this is going to be the first John Carney movie we've actually reviewed on the show together, Josh. Seems strange. What happened it with does. Sing Street? I don't maybe, I think. Was it a year-end rush type of that's thing? That's it. Okay. It was a year-end rush type of thing. Saw it leading up to our top 10 made yeah. my top 10 of the year, but we really didn't get to discuss it. That said, I don't think anyone who listened to film spotting during that period thinks, boy, I didn't hear enough about Sing Street. Yeah, it's it's been covered fairly well. I agree. 
<laughs> also next week, poll results. The current film spotting poll, you can still vote in it, asks you to choose your favorite John Carney film. Is it Once? Is it Sing Street or Begin Again? This is your moment, Begin Again enthusiast. <laughs> My question for you, Josh, I did look at the results mm. earlier today. It's fairly close overall. I think you would not be surprised at all by the film that's leading and by how much. But do you have a guess on how many votes Begin Again got? What percentage of the vote currently do you think Begin Again received? What percentage? Well, the way we set this up would only antagonize fans of Begin Again. And then I imagine the word begins to spread Oh yeah, at, at their meetings. <laughs> it's the first topic on the agenda. So... I think that would amount to, I'm going to go with 3% of the vote. 3%? 3% is actually on the high end of what I thought it would get. I would have guessed more likely 1% or 2%. In fact, Josh, it has 8% of the vote. Hey, look at that. They, they must be including the international chapter of the Begin Again Society. How many votes, what percentage does it have to get for you to finally watch it? Oh, I mean, I'm not holding out out of any sort of principle. It's just a matter of time. I, understand. I, I don't sure. I don't think the way things are in my life right now, this it could win the poll. That's not happening. I'm sorry, John Carney. I will. I'm very eager to see Flora and Son begin again. It's going to have to wait. You can vote and leave a comment in that poll at filmspotting.net. Quick note, Adam, about a book event. I'm starting to finally get out and do some book events. Some of these are far flung. I'll be all the way out in Calgary next month talking Fear Not, A Christian Appreciation of Horror Movies, but closer to home, I want to make sure Chicago folks know about this. On October 28, 8 p.m., over at Facets, the staunchly independent film venue, they also do a lot of film education programming there at Facets on Fullerton Avenue. I'm going to introduce a screen October 28 of Talk to Me. That was the quite something horror flick from earlier this year, Australian possession horror flick. This is the one where the teenagers get a hold of the embalmed hand mm-hmm. and it enables How I them, forget? Yeah, enables them to um to be possessed for about a minute or so. Things go badly. So we're gonna watch Talk to Me. I'm gonna introduce it. And then Facets has a nice little cafe at the front there. I think they just renovated it. So I'm eager to see how that turned out. And uh, yeah, afterwards, we'll talk about Talk to Me and how it might fit into the book. Obviously, I don't cover it in the book, in Fear Not, um, but I think it is an interesting title to consider in that context. So this is pretty much the only Chicago area book-related event, at least right now, I have on the calendar. So it's not exactly a book release party. Fear Not has been out for about a month now, but I am excited that I'm able to do something in the city. We will link to details about this and how you can get tickets uh, in the show notes. But yeah, that's going to be October 28, about a month from now. And just a quick tease. We'll share full details later, but another appearance doing some book work and also us doing a bit of a live thing will be in Iowa City for those in and around the corridor, as they call it. We'll be talking adaptations again as part of Film Scene's Refocus Film Festival in October. Again, many more details to come. Quick note as well about our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. They have a new pairing they're in the midst of. They're looking at Pablo Lorraine's El Conde alongside Pablo Lorraine's 2012 breakout, No, with Gael Garcia Bernal. So both of those films about the end of Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet's reign. 
The Next Picture Show looks at cinema's present via its past. Your hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. And you can get new episodes every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. You can also get more information at nextpictureshow.net. All right, all that business out of the way, let's get to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance to win a film spotting t-shirt. A couple weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. Dirty old man. What happened? I just got pinched in the elevator. Now you know how the other half lives. Look at that, I'm not even pretty. They don't care, just so long as you're wearing a skirt. It's like waving a red flag in front of a bull. Really? Well, I'm sick of being the flag. I want to be a bull again. Now, what do you say? Let's get out of here. Let's blow. Blow where? You promised me, Joe, that the minute we hit Florida, we were going to beat it. How can we? We're broke. Well, we could find another band, a male band. Look stupid. Right now, Spats Colombo and his chums are looking for us and every male band in the country. So humiliating. So you got pinched in the elevator. So what? Would you rather be picking lead out of your navel? That was Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon in 1959's Some Like It Hot, written by Billy Wilder and IAL Diamond, directed by Wilder. That massacre was part of our Midnight Run show a couple of weeks ago. So why that scene from Some Like It Hot? Maxwell Fletcher in New York, New York says both Some Like It Hot and Midnight Run feature two guys on the run with Chicago mobsters in hot pursuit. Well done, Maxwell. Trivia spotting mafia member. Oh, no, they're a mafia now. This is Devin Jolly Jack. I think I Jack- coined that. I did not was claim Devin's, Devin's nickname, Jolly Jackboot. That came from Sam Van Hall. That had to be Sam, yeah. Devin is in Long Island City, New York. He says, put this in the on-the-run-from-the-mob wing of the Pantheon next to Midnight Run and Sister Act. Yeah, this Pantheon is going to have so <laughs> many wings, isn't it? <laughs> okay, Rebecca. Give me some leeway here. Rebecca Yalen in Grebo, Sweden. I don't often know what movie it is being massacred after only the first couple of words, or at all, but with Some Like It Hot, I knew straight away. Probably because of Adam's wonderful and justified anger. I think that's what it was. As far as connections go, like Midnight Run, Some Like It Hot is a movie about two guys traveling across America while followed by Chicago mobsters. Both movies also feature scenes where those guys argue in a train bathroom. Deep cut, Rebecca. No matter how hard I tried, I couldn't quite make a connection with Yelen and being betrayed by your penis. <laughs> but I really, really hope somebody else did. Yes, we talked about that film as part of our African cinema marathon. No connections that we were going for. Hmm. I got to give that some thought. But thanks for following along with us, Rebecca, on that marathon. Love it. Here's Ben Collar from East Brunswick, New Jersey. Robert De Niro trained at the Actors Studio, which is also where Marilyn Monroe received her training. Of course, the most obvious connection, Midnight Run features Dennis Farina, who hosted the 2008 revival version of Unsolved Mysteries. The original host of Unsolved Mysteries, Raymond Burr, appeared in the Martin Lewis film You're Never Too Young, a remake of The Major and the Minor, which was written and directed by Billy Wilder, who also wrote and directed Some Like It Hot. There we go. We got there. Yeah. Even deeper cuts from Ben Collar, who is... I'd be remiss if I didn't say, also part of the trivia spotting mafia there in the New York City area. Very obvious connections we were, of course, going for there. And quick shout out to the major and the minor. I think an underrated Billy Wilder film. It's, it's a hoot or a pip, as Michael Phillips might say. Finally, here's Addison Alley in Salt Lake City, Utah. While I don't bat an eye at Midnight Run's inclusion in the Pantheon, I bat both of them furiously. The Some Like It Hot is excluded. Much like Yellen, this movie has the famous ending where both Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis are changed into ostrich eggs. Yes. Now, I, I don't remember that, but then again, nobody's perfect. Oh, that was surprising when that happened. I, I really hasten to bring this up. 
Is that the right expression? I hasten to bring it up? Yeah, I don't think so. Does that mean I'm hesitant? What's the word I'm looking for? You could just say you're hesitant. I'm hesitant. (laughs) I'm hesitant to bring this up because there are going to be certain pantheon experts slash completists slash purists. I don't know, not unlike our own producer, Sam Van Halgren, who, who craves structure and purpose to the pantheon. But I'm going to throw this out. Long, long, long time listeners may remember. This is not just apocryphal. It's true. That there was a point in time, Josh, where if you went to the film spotting website, an old version of the film spotting website, and you looked at the Pantheon, some like it hot was in the Pantheon. So what happened? And then in a upcoming or next iteration of the film spotting Pantheon, it just disappeared. It's a mystery. It's a mystery we'll never solve. Something nefarious at play, or is this something we can blame on an intern? I... I I don't know. Sure. Let's go the intern route. All right. (laughs) Reach into the pretty brimming film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner. Our winner is Ryan Cam from New York City. Congratulations, Ryan. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and you can claim your very own film spotting t-shirt or tote bag, or you can get a trial membership in the film spotting family. Do we go right into the sex? Is that all right? You don't need a rehearsal? Oh, it's okay. I can do it. Okay. Then we'll shoot the rehearsal. Great. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater, one in which we are changing the names. One, because we kind of have to. One, we definitely don't have to, but we just thought it'd be fun to change it as well. Also, we're, we're excising a character. Mm, We're changing the dialogue a little bit, losing one line just to streamline it and keep it to these two (laughs) main characters in the scene. And this is the dumbest thing maybe I've ever said on the show, but it's amazing how performances can take something that's already good on the page (laughs) and just really make it magic. And now we're going to undo (laughs) all that magic. That's not what's going to happen here. I'm I'm glad you put that in listeners' heads just before we begin. I say that, and no offense to these two incredible comedic performers, but maybe the scene is so good that we can't ruin it, Josh. Let's try. Let's try not to ruin it. <laughs> Let's we try always not have high, to massacre. High bars for ourselves. <laughs> massacre theater. What are we even doing here anymore if that's our goal? I started off, you're going to give me the action. Good to go? No, but let's do it. And action. Get out of here, Cal. What are y'all doing in here? We're smoking reefer. And you don't want no part of this You're smoking reefers? Yeah, of course we are. Can't you smell it? No, Harry, I can't. You know what? I don't want no hangover. I can't get no hangover. It doesn't give you a hangover. Well, will I get addicted to it or something? It's not habit forming. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know. I don't want to overdose on it. You can't OD on it. It's not going to make me want to have sex, is it? It makes sex even better. Sounds kind of expensive. It's the cheapest drug there is. Hmm. You don't want it. I think I kind of want it. And (laughs) scene. (laughs) That's so good. I I did not fully appreciate this movie when it came out. I'll admit to it. Yeah. If you know what movie we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. You have until Monday, October 2nd to get that entry in. We will select the winner randomly. 
from all the correct entries and announce it in a couple of weeks. We've been together 16 years. Who? Who? Yes. The band. Uh-huh. Um, do you want me to plug that in there? Yeah, let's do it again. The band has been together 16 years, together on the road. We did eight years in bars, dives, dance halls, eight years of concerts and stadiums, arenas. We gave our final concert, the band's final concert. We called it The Last Waltz. Well, why was the hell in San Francisco and, uh... The late Robbie Robertson with Martin Scorsese in an early scene from 1978's The Last Waltz. The film documented the final concert of the band, a Thanksgiving 76 show that featured guest performances from the likes of Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, Van Morrison, Muddy Waters, Eric Clapton, Neil Young. The list goes on. The Last Waltz is considered by many to be one of the great, if not the greatest, concert film ever made. It is a claim. Spoiler alert, I happen to agree with. We're just going to rush ahead of the top five, Josh. I've got it at number one. It's number my number one. one favorite music slash concert documentary. Hopefully, I'll do it justice here with our conversation. And we did want to spend a few minutes just focusing on The Last Waltz. As we mentioned, it's a Scorsese blind spot for you, Josh. And it's a film that re-entered the zeitgeist or at least our social media feeds when Robertson passed away in August He was, as we mentioned earlier, a longtime collaborator of Scorsese's and scored the upcoming Killers of the Flower Moon. They first met during the planning stages of The Last Waltz. And Scorsese, as a filmmaker, had some experience working on concert films. He was an editor and assistant director of Woodstock. He came on board The Last Waltz production just six weeks before the concert. To capture that concert, he used seven 35-millimeter cameras, cameras operated by some pretty heady DPs. Laszlo Kovacs, who shot Easy Rider and Five Easy Pieces and Paper Moon and, yes, Ghostbusters. And Vilma Zygmunt, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, The Deer Hunter, Blowout, The Long Goodbye. And then following the show, Scorsese shot three additional performances on an MGM soundstage, including a performance of The Weight featuring the Staples Singers. Also following the concert, he conducted informal, very informal interviews with band members getting some insight into the history of the group which formed in Toronto in the late 50s. They backed Dylan in the 60s, including, yes, that notorious tour playing Electric for the first time. I think we're going to get to all the musicians in the group here as we talk more, at least I plan to, Josh, in our review. But you admitted to not being overly familiar with the band's music. Did this document convince you to get to know them better or Did it at least make you appreciate why so many people like me value them and value this film? Yeah. I mean, you realize, which I think happens anytime you watch a music documentary about a group that you think you don't know, you realize, oh, yeah, (laughs) this is this is why there's a documentary about them. Mm -hmm. There are all of these beloved songs that you've heard just in the ether. And so, yeah, getting to connect those dots was enjoyable. And this is just such a time capsule. I mean, I would say it's 50% informative about the band and 50% just a document 
of some of these musical artists of the time, some of mm-hmm. the top rock talent of the 1970s. It, it, it kind of does that as much as anything else. And I think already Absolutely. a couple of the titles on our list have done similar things. We've rattled through the other musical artists who pop up in this movie that's ostensibly about one group. So I think that's happening here. And again, for me, I really appreciated that time capsule quality. I did want to ask your, since you're much more familiar with this material and the group, I did want to ask your opinion on something that I found to be a fascinating dynamic. I think I know where Mm -hmm. I land on it, but the movie opens with this scene of bassist Rick Danko playing pool. He's setting up a pool game, right? And he, I forget what he calls it, um, but he's got a name for it. And then he says something like, basically your job is to keep your balls on the table and knock everybody else's off. Yeah. And I'm thinking, oh, this is interesting. Just, just knowing a vague amount about who else is in this documentary, that it is a band's final performance. Their time together has come to an end. Like is Scorsese mm-hmm. choosing that moment to set us up for a concert full of competition, not only among those band members, but among all those names who will appear. And, you know, anyone who's familiar with the movie, I think probably has a quick answer to that. But I just, I do want to get kind of your reaction to that, that little moment, why Scorsese started this whole thing with that and and kind of how it relates to what we end up seeing. You know, it only now just occurred to me that he also memorably opens the color of money with a pool break. And Scorsese is the one who's providing the voiceover there. I have a lot of thoughts on, I think, where you're you're potentially going in terms of competition. That's actually something I really want to dive into, the dynamics of the band and the relationships that we see. That said, I wonder if it's actually a line that he has there at the beginning to juxtapose with everything that we see that unfolds after it. Because what I see on stage is this joyous coming together of these band members. And that's one of the things about the band. They were all so talented. And as a collective, they created something that none of them individually could pull off on their own. And then you bring in all of these other artists. Yes, I know Neil Young is Canadian. I know four-fifths of the band is Canadian. But you talked about what this movie really documents. It's it's the history of America through its music. And I don't want to dwell on that too much. We talked about another movie set in 1976, artificially, last week, Dazed and Confused. Yeah, that was fascinating. This happened in 1976, right. I'm not suggesting that Scorsese deliberately or Robbie Robertson intentionally decided to break up the band the year of America's bicentennial. And yet, watching this and watching... That that carnival of amazing voices and artists take the stage. It really it tells a story. It tells that story of rock and roll, and then by extension, America from the blues and people like Muddy Waters and Tin Pan Alley, all the way through Dylan and folk music and beyond. So that's something special the movie is doing. That's another layer the movie is working on. And I didn't actually feel that competitive dynamic come through, even when two artists arguably should have been competing with each other. A scene between Eric Clapton and Robbie Robertson where they have to trade guitar licks. You know, this is a time, he's still revered 
as such by many people. But this is a time where Clapton sort of at his pinnacle of Clapton is God fame and reverence. And Robbie just goes toe to toe with him, but also doesn't seem to have any qualms about letting Clapton be Clapton. It never feels like he actually is trying to one-up him. Maybe that's because he's aware of his own limitations, despite being an incredible guitar player as well. But I didn't really feel that competition. And so if anything, I wonder if Scorsese was setting up the notion that that's how the business is these days. That's how the business maybe has always been. That's how a lot of bands and their dynamics can be. That's not the dynamic we're going to see for the next two hours. Yeah, that's that's how I took it as well. And and anyone you know who's seen this, which is most people are probably like, why are you even bothering to ask that? And, and it's just because it was a first time experience for me. But absolutely what we get then is this communal celebration, right, of each yeah. other's talents. You're right. That includes the band. Different people taking lead vocals on different songs, you know, that is absolutely unique. And then when we get these celebrities, these all-stars, these guests, your description of the Clapton Robertson, you know, guitar back and forth is dead on. And you can see the thrill on Robertson's face getting to be a part of that. And there is a thrill. And obviously this is heightened because they do know this is, you know, the end for them on a random show in a random city in the midst of touring. That's probably not what he looks like. Right. And that's why they're calling it quits. He speaks mm-hmm. to that fact, but here in this venue, in this situation, he's just blissed out. Everyone is, you know, there's a shared bliss of being together on the stage, pretty much no matter who comes on. I think you can detect that. Uh, that being said, you know, I know you want to get to the other band members and, and, you know, give them their due. We should do that. But I think it's very interesting how Scorsese's camera always seems to find Robertson Mm. and you get it, you know, even when the rest of the band members are being interviewed and some of them are are, they interviewed. (laughs) Well, are they even interviewed? Some of them. Well, I want to talk a little bit about Scorsese's interviewing technique because I actually think. Uh, especially after having seen Italian American, which was just a couple of years earlier, where he interviews his parents, I really like his interview skills. He he's he has a way of being direct, pointed, and then he knows to create a vacant space mm-hmm. that if you wait long enough, somebody's going to fill it. So so I think that's a talent you know on display here. But yeah, going back to you know going back to the other band members, they'll try to answer some questions, and it kind of meanders off or doesn't really go anywhere. Robertson grabs it, and grabs it. the charisma just jumps right right off him as a storyteller. Um, that's backstage. Then on stage, he has um, you know he's conducting. It seems to be a lot uh-huh. of the action, mm-hmm. uh, but he also has this air to him of being happy to be there. This shaggy. He's like a savvier than he looks savant. And yes. you totally That's a good way get, to put it. You totally get why Scorsese would gravitate towards him, why they had this fruitful collaboration till the end of Robertson's life. So so yeah, that's that's something I noticed in terms of the camera itself. Just always kind of, you know, definitely give trying to give everyone their due, but you know, mm. if he had his want, it's gonna drift over to Robbie Robertson. It's where the music would take you. I mean, otherwise you would never go to such a situation. Because of the music, it took us through, it took us everywhere. It took us to some strange places. Physically and spiritually? Physically, spiritually, and psychotically. 
just always wasn't on the stage. Even though you were on the stage? Even though we were on the stage. Yeah, I think we see that want expressed. And depending on your perspective, you could argue that just blatantly, Martin Scorsese's camera doesn't give enough attention to the other members of the band. I really want to dive into that because it reflects my experience watching this film and rewatching this film. And it's why your question, probably inadvertently, about competition or any kind of tension or strife in the band, to anyone listening who knows the band and its history post The Last Waltz, they know that's actually very appropriate. So we're coming at this from two different perspectives, where you're definitely a music fan, you know some of these songs generally, and of course you're a huge movie fan and you're a Scorsese fan. I'm watching, and I always feel a little pretentious when I say this, but I suppose it's literally true. I'm watching as a musician, I'm watching as someone who's been in bands, and as someone who knows this band intimately. If there's been documentaries about this group, I've watched them. If there's been profiles written about the band, I've read them. I've read Levon Helm's autobiography, This Wheel's on Fire. And one of the ways I engage with The Last Waltz whenever I revisit it is as a bit of an armchair social psychologist. And you or anyone else can reject all of this as extra textual nonsense. That's fine. But I'd argue it's impossible to reckon with the band without acknowledging what we know now about those relationships in the group dynamics and how Scorsese's framing, framing of the narrative that is the band and its conclusion, but also, as you said, literally the framing of Robbie Robertson continues to inform our understanding of the band and those group dynamics. I said there's been documentaries. 2019, one came out by director Daniel Rower that's called Once We're Brothers, referencing a line from a band song. The full title is actually Once We're Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the band, you know, putting Robbie there first. And Robbie is the central figure. That movie, I think, probably addresses too neatly the fractured relationship that developed post this film between Robbie and other members of the group, and in particular, LaVon Helm, the drummer. There's a Rolling Stone piece from 2000, I think, a profile of LaVon Helm that I remember reading in 2000, where the backdrop is the bass player Rick Danko's funeral. And LaVon is so angry at Robbie still that he can't bring himself to go in to Danko's funeral. He stays like in a cafe or something, if I recall correctly, a little bit away. He just doesn't want to interact with Robbie at all. Central to that conflict is Robbie's role as primary songwriter and thus making most of the money and Robbie's role as primary everything. You know, we, we heard him say in that clip, right? 16 years on the road. It's a long time. Eight years in dive bars. It's no way to live. It's time for us to stop. Well, there's a reason why Robbie's saying that, Josh. Nobody else in the band felt that way. The band didn't want to stop. Robbie wanted to stop the band. And there's a ton of lingering resentment surrounding that. So what does that have to do with the movie? Well, Robbie is Scorsese's buddy. They've become really good friends at this time. He's a producer on the film. He's not only the person who handles almost all of the interviews, he's dead center stage. Anytime there's a wide shot, right? He's dead center. And what little talking occurs on stage to the crowd, he does it. He's the band leader insofar as he's often signaling. You said conducting. He's signaling when to start. He's dictating the tempo. He's signaling when to end. And Scorsese's cameras adore him. They, they favor him inarguably at the expense of the other members of the band. And watching it for me, 
I simultaneously understand why everyone could resent Robbie deeply. And on a personal level, I just have to admit, I identify with him so deeply. And I may be projecting a lot, Josh, but I want to say I... I'm not suggesting that I have an ounce of Robbie Robertson's creative talent. I'm not equating myself to him. But I'd suggest we might share a bit of a personality type. I have a bigger need to be loved, and he's more unapologetic. This is a guy who once said about the anger the other band members feel toward him about the publishing credit. And I'm paraphrasing here, but some of it I'm getting dead on. He said, I'm sorry I worked harder than everyone else. <laughs> you arrange your parts great. That's your job in the band. That's that's basically how he how he wrote it off. He's just incapable of not being in control. He's incapable of not being the driving force. He can't just blend in or go along for the ride. He has to be that conductor and that manifests itself and how he talks about the group, manifests itself on stage in his performance, including how he is constantly, I wonder if you caught on to this at all, Josh, how he is constantly seen singing, yet also is pretty clearly never actually singing. He's never actually the one whose voice you're hearing. It's, it's basically him lip syncing the entire time. Is that a totally innocent, joyous expression of music he loves and wrote that he's aware he'll never perform again with the people he wrote it for? Or is it this compulsion to constantly insert himself <laughs> to remind everybody watching that he wrote those words? almost trying to trick people into thinking that he's providing one of those beautiful harmony voices when he definitely is not. Again, it it depends on your, your perspective. And I think you can hold one of those thoughts in your head simultaneously with a competing thought that is your appreciation for his immense talent and his contributions to music and as just an incredible storyteller. So I say all of that just to give you a sense for me of like, watching The Last Waltz isn't isn't a passive experience. And it's it's not just enjoying some songs I love by musicians I love. It's really personal. And I'm studying every answer, every silence, every lighting of a cigarette, <laughs> every glance or gesture on stage. I'm watching it all very carefully. Sure. And like I when I described him before, like the trick maybe, or maybe this is just naturally how he carries himself, is that he doesn't present as caring about any of that. That's where the shagginess comes mm. in, right? And so, you know, after you go through all that, it sounds kind of diabolical, <laughs> whereas... It sounds if, too calculated. It, it sounds calculated, yes. where, whereas, you know, if you're just going with what's on the screen, you know, you just take this guy as a laid back, incredible talent. Mm -hmm. um, but then you do notice, you notice those, those, the use of the camera and where the camera goes. And, and, um, you do wonder what's going on with that. So I wanted, I wanted to, you mentioned something there, or maybe a little bit earlier about, you know, a history of, of American music. And one thing that gave me pause again, and, and I imagine you have you know, a lot of background to this. Um, so we don't need to go into everything. But one thing that did give me pause, at least looking at this now in 2023, is the band always has. And from what little I did know of them, um, which was hearing some of the songs that I knew were of the band and, and you know, I guess I'd call it Dixie posturing, right? Sure. It, they just always struck me as this like. Obviously, this comes down to the song, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. But even here, you see, you know, the song's featured here. But even here, you see backstage at one point, this Confederate flag hanging in the background. And that 
you know, just now it just seems really lame considering they're mostly Canadian, especially. And so this is something like this is a, a historical document. This is not to say like they need to be discounted or canceled or anything like that. But it definitely gave me pause. And especially when you talk about the context of tracing the history of American music there. And this is what rock is, right? It's borrowing from mm. all sorts of influences. So in some ways, this is nothing unique, but it did jump out to me in this day and age as them being a particularly posturing group in that way, which is something I always kind of sniffed about them. Just not, yeah. it, was, it was just a little well, bit why maybe I didn't explore more. It's like, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's, as, a you band, know, as a band defender, let me counter. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. No, this, I want to I hear, hear more yeah, about it because no. there's a lot more to it, I'm sure. Yeah, the counter would be First of all, regardless of what their bona fides are or aren't, it's a feeling you get from watching them perform that music. And if it feels like posturing to you or anyone else, I, I don't know how to argue with that. It never feels anything less than completely authentic to me. But in terms of their bona fides, there is a key part of this. And, and really the reason why I think they, they pull it off is that LeVon Helm is the one guy who is Arkansas, not Canadian. Right? He's from Arkansas, I believe that's correct. And he was the oldest member of the group. He was the one that brought them all into this group, as I recall, with Ronnie Hawkins. Those eight years they spent in dive bars, that was all time they spent, not only in the United States, but particularly in the South, interacting with blues singers and just gleaning everything they could from rhythm and blues and country performance. And LaVon Helm... I mean, his roots in terms of Americana music goes deeper than just about anyone who's ever played it. So they were all kind of under his tutelage. And not only that, they were playing in all those bars and they were learning from all those different types of artists in the South. Ronnie Hawkins, the guy who was their band leader, who, again, they all learned to be a band under, he's from Huntsville, Arkansas. So that's why they were playing all these groups. That's how they made a living, was playing this music in the deep South. So they were people who were taking it all in. They were borrowing it. And then they were as good borrowers do as great artists do. They borrow from their influences and they make it something uniquely themselves. And I think it'd be hard to argue that the band didn't create something uniquely and authentically them to your point though, I'll say I once knew a really good jazz guitar player I kind of ran in a circle with him and another friend of mine for a while. And anytime the band would come up, because I was a big fan and my friend Matt, who we were always with, was a big fan. And anytime they would come up in conversation, he would start singing like up on Cripple Creek in the most exaggerated hick accent. <laughs> and and I got it, I suppose. And it made me laugh, even if it also did, did kind of enrage me. So I, I'm definitely pro-authenticity or the idea that they have legitimacy when they perform those songs and they tell those stories, which again, at its core, that's what the band's all about because of Robbie and those lyrics and songs like The Night They Dribbled Dixie Down. And don't think, if you haven't already seen it, that you can't Google it and find a Slate article from a few years ago that talks about how whether or not we should actually stop listening to The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. And that's fine. We can have that conversation. I still like the song and I still very much like the performance. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Can I just touch on two moments with the uh, the guest performers that I found interesting? Yes. First, first of all, 
Neil Young, back to this idea of, you know, is there any competition? Neil Young came across to me as just the most gracious, happy to be their guy. And then reading a little something afterwards, apparently he's he's the most famously high person there on stage. Um, yes. so, so maybe that had a little more to do with it. <laughs> Real quick, Josh, wonderful bit of trivia surrounding this movie. Robbie once said that the most expensive cocaine he ever bought was the cocaine that Neil Young snorted right before he went out on stage because in the director's cut of this film, which I think they released at one point, you can see it. I don't think it's the one I've seen, but you can see this footage. But in the one that was released in theaters and the one that was available forever on demand or on home video, they had to use some kind of special effect to remove the very noticeable glob of cocaine in his nostrils. There you that go. Apparently his, his management was like, you have to take that out. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's what I saw. That would, that, that's what pointed me to it. So, so yeah, you know, he could still be gracious. And as, I love that song as I well as Helpless. that too. And then man, was I happy Van Morrison got off stage before he hurled. Cause it was, it was getting <laughs> dicey there for a minute. I mean, he didn't, he didn't stop performing. He was gonna, you know, give it his all, but he barely made it off stage. Sam is never going to allow you besmirching the name of Van Morrison on a podcast here. He's not. He's going to cut that right out of this show, Josh. I'm I'm praising the man for his professionalism. Okay. He kept okay. he kept it backstage. Okay. Well, I I want to talk about the music a little bit more in detail and what I think is this sort of <laughs> remarkable alchemy that I don't know how to describe, so just bear with me here, but there's there's just something mysterious and and mythical about this group. Of course, it helps when you have Martin Scorsese making this film called The Last Waltz, but it's about, as I said, their individual talents and then coming together as this collective. And it's not a band where anyone could be described as a virtuoso. They're all very good musicians. Garth Hudson might be the only exception, and Scorsese actually gives some time to that, right? Talking about how classically trained he was, and he's someone who is pulling in all these musical inspirations. He probably was the closest thing to a virtuoso the group had. But watching this film, whether you're a musician or not, whether the songs seem a little hokey and down home to you or not, I'm not sure how you don't appreciate the collective talent and the the multitude and the range of voices and instrumentation. And as an indicator of, of that mythical status, I'll give you two other artists I love have written songs about these guys. You know, Jason Isbell, he has a song that he wrote for the drive-by truckers back in 2003, I think, that's called Denko Manual. And he was once asked about writing it, and he said when he sat down to do it, I wanted to capture some of LeVon Helm's feelings about the deaths and lives of Richard Manuel and Rick Denko. The longer I worked on the song, the more impossible that became. I felt like the best I could do was to explain my own attitude toward being a working and traveling musician. And it's a wonderful song. He says, can you hear that singing? Sounds like gold. Maybe I can only hear it in my head. 15 years ago, they owned that road. Now it's rolling over us instead. Richard Manuel is dead. And he says, first they make you out to be the only pirate on the sea. Then they say Danko would have sounded just like me. Is that the man you want to be? Counting Crows, they have a song called If I Could Give All My Love to You or Richard Manuel is Dead. And it starts with Adam Durrett saying, got a message in my head that the papers had all gone. Richard Manuel is dead and the daylight's coming on. So just indicating how they hold this, this status and this reverence among some other artists. And and there's mystery just in 
invoking their names for these artists. And you said it, there's no lead singer. You've got Danko and Helm and Manuel splitting up the lead vocal duties, mainly Danko and, and LeVon Helm. And what a gift for Robbie Robertson as a songwriter to be able to choose which voice best matches the song and what you want to express. You got Danko's heartbreaking falsetto that's always, it seems, on the verge of breaking. Well, I love you so much And it's all I can do And then you you have that countered by LeVon Helm's gritty, rousing, kind of semi-growl. Take a load off Fanny Take a load to freeze Take a load off Fanny And then that eerie, haunting voice of Richard Manuel. Go just so many shades to play with. And I'll sum it up this way for anyone listening. And I'll go back real quick here and say, Sam posted on our Facebook page. He posted a poll about the last waltz. He said, Scorsese's the last waltz. And here were your choices. The best concert film that got 12%. I'd say that's not bad. Good. There are better. That got 38%. I feel okay about that. I think we all have certain concert films in mind that may get mentioned later that might be better. Third choice, seen it, not my tempo. Kind of happy to see only 3%, Josh, but haven't seen it, actually got 48%. The majority of the vote, at least from our listeners on Facebook, said that they had never seen this movie. So maybe in talking about it and maybe in praising these musicians as much as I'm going to, maybe people will understand why they need to take the time to watch this film and really watch it. Rick Danko is both one of my top five bass players, so subtly inventive and melodic, and top five singers. LeVon Helm is one of my top five drummers, playing rock and roll, but with this unrivaled swing to it, almost like a jazz drummer. And he's also one of my top five favorite rock singers. And then you've got Robbie, who's one of my top five guitarists. All three of them, distinctive, unique. Robbie plays with these pinched harmonics. It literally has a pinching sound to it. Nobody else employs that technique like he does. And he's not the player Clapton is overall. But when Clapton's strap breaks and Robbie has to fill that void, he immediately jumps in and he shreds. Clapton's smoother, but boy do I like Robbie's voicings and his choices on the guitar more. And guess what? Countered everything I was saying before about maybe inserting himself into the music in the moment, as a guitar player, never inserts himself. Never tries to take the spotlight away from the song, from the singers, from the other musicians. He compliments as a guitar player everything everyone else is doing. And I love some songs more than others. I love some guests and their performances more than others. But I do love them all. And, and when I said how personal it is, I've actually never said this out loud before, and my wife will never hear this. So you and you and Sam will have to get together and and produce this event someday, Josh. But I actually think at my funeral someday, the song you're going to hear played is very likely going to be It Makes No Difference. And it makes no difference as performed by the band during the last waltz. The song breaks my heart. And it makes no difference 
Danko's pleading voice, Robbie's yearning guitar, it just aches. And yet, as sad as it is, and let me be clear, I want everyone to be in tears. Like Robbie, I'm going to be orchestrating everything from beyond. I have to be in control. I want there to be that that heartfelt emotion to it, but then you get the ending. You get that soprano saxophone solo by Garth Hudson where everything suddenly ascends. It's like a dark cloud breaking at the end of that song. I I can never get enough of listening to that song or watching them perform it. Now, what I'm getting from all this, Adam, correct me if I'm wrong and I miss something. Mm-hmm. You really like the band. I really like the band. Okay, good. I just wanted to make sure I wasn't missing. Yeah. yeah. Did I express that? I, I hope think, I did. Yes, I got that. <laughs> any other thoughts, Josh, that you would like to share about The Last Waltz before we return to our countdown? I don't think there are any thoughts left. Okay. Well, when when I ended on the note of me dying... We kind of have to move much, on, don't we? Yeah, I, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna take down that Top note. That, Josh. At some point, I'm gonna pass that along to Sarah. I, I think that falls. I think that falls more in her department than me or even Sam. So yeah, I'll wait on that though. Not not the okay. next time I see her. The Last Waltz is available to rent on most platforms. If you see it and agree or disagree with us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Maybe you'd like to propose another song to play at my funeral. That's fine. Let's get back. Josh, into that countdown, our top five music documentaries, we are at your number two. All right. So number two, a little unusual because it's actually a recent documentary. It came out in 2018, but it chronicles a 1972 performance. This is Aretha Franklin over two days making the live recording of her gospel album, Amazing Grace. This was done at the New Temple Missionary Baptist Church in Watts. So the album itself, uh, you know, made at the height of her mainstream popularity, it returned her to her church roots and ended up being her best-selling release. The film shares the album's title, Amazing Grace, and it features not only Aretha, but also gospel legend Reverend James Cleveland, sort of the conductor of the events. And she's got the Southern California Community Choir as backup. There's even a sermon from Aretha Franklin's father, Reverend C.L. Franklin, which adds some familial sweetness, but also a little tension to the proceedings because you have this sense of, uh, I don't know, I don't want to interpret what it is, but you definitely sense there's a lot there between them, even as they're happy to be in this space together. And then, of course, there are the audience slash church members who are in the pews. Now, the nice thing, usually, Adam, about having my own website where I still write reviews, larsonfilm.com, serves as a handy archive for these top five lists, right? I often go back, see what I wrote about a movie, take some notes there, and bring those into our picks. So I thought, this will be great. Searched for Amazing Grace. This is all I found. Holy Moses. No need to desecrate this with any more words. So I was silenced. You copped out. You copped I, no, out as a critic. No, I was silenced <laughs> by amazing grace. I yeah. had I had no more. I did, I did not want to desecrate this thing with words. So I'm going to lean on others' words here. I get uh, it. Critic Odie Henderson, he had a four out of four star review over at RogerEbert.com on this one. He said, this film is a powerful love letter to the black church, offering a soul-shaking introduction for the unfamiliar 
and a grandmotherly yank of the arm for those who know. It drags you from the theater straight into the pews. I love that. Here's some more praise um, for the movie that came from listeners. I put out on social media, you know, what's your favorite music doc? The one. You have to just choose one. Which one are you going with? Kevin McLenathan over on Blue Sky. Yes. Yes, I am on Blue Look Sky. Look at you. <laughs> Kevin said this, haven't seen as many as I should, but 2018's Amazing Grace got to me in a way that no other live music doc has. A big reason might be the shots of the audience. They're not just spectators, they're participants, and they're participating in more than just an Aretha Franklin event. And one more here from Twitter slash X, Carl Friedhoff picked Amazing Grace. Aretha at her height a fantastic backing choir, and a rapt audience. So now why the delay? Why, you know, this was 72. Why did we not get it until 2018? Well, there was a technical error at the time with the footage. I should note this was shot by a crew led by director Sidney Pollack. And so that made it impossible to sync with the sound. Kind of a problem for something like this. Then there were legal hurdles for many years while the tech was being fixed. Eventually, you know, that all came together so that this saw the light of day. Amazing Grace, a belated treasure, but a treasure for sure. I looked at Letterboxd and I don't have this logged. And yet I know I have seen this movie or at least most of this movie back around awards season. I know that I checked it out because everyone was raving about it. And rightfully, for all the reasons you mentioned, maybe I owe Aretha a full watch here at some point, Josh. I already said my number one. It's the last waltz. So I'm going to spoil things a little bit by giving you my number two, which I know is also your number one, a perfect culmination for this episode. We're going to talk about the film that largely inspired us to do the top five. Yes, Jonathan Demme's Stop Making Sense is back in theaters, coming back to theaters, thanks to A24. Can't wait to go see this, including with my daughter, Sophie. What a thrill. How incredible is it to be able to say, I saw Stop Making Sense for the first time on the big screen. I know there are people listening who actually did see it for the first time on the big screen in 1984. I was not one of those people. To now have a chance for people to see it for the first time or to revisit it, as in our case, Josh, it's something that I am incredibly excited for. And maybe we can help get others excited as well. There's a Jonathan Demi quote about Stop Making Sense. I think I referenced back when we talked about it during that 8 from 84 review. He said something about shooting live music. This probably isn't true, but I think this is the purest form of filmmaking. There are these artists doing that, and we're here to team up with that and capture that in the way that best suits the music being played. No pun intended there on the suits, I'm sure, from Jonathan Demi. Now, if you'd never seen Stop Making Sense or maybe you didn't know a lot about the band or Jonathan Demi, you might be inclined to hear that quote and think that the director is saying, it's my job as a filmmaker just to capture that. They're amazing artists. They're performing. I'll render that as unobtrusively as possible. I'll capture it and get out of the way and just let talking heads be talking heads. Arguably, that's the Scorsese approach to The Last Waltz. I mean, the most artistic flourishes seem to come really in the staged numbers. And it's hard to really discern the directing choices, the shots and editing decisions in, I think, the live performances themselves. But Jonathan Demme really does team up. He comes up with a way 
to capture this, that best suits the music being played. It is truly an artistic collaboration in its entirety, in its totality, but then song to song. Think about how they present Psycho Killer. I've talked about it before. I think my number three Jonathan Demi scene. This is a song ostensibly from the point of view of an alienated homicidal man. So how do we get it? David Byrne, alone, on stage, guitar and boombox, deliriously deranged. Hi, I got a tape I want to play. This lonely man, so lonely that for the first minute of that performance, you're not even sure as a viewer that there are really people in the audience. This is like a performance that could be taking place only in his demented mind. He's eventually then joined one by one by the rest of the band. And then it it culminates like the last waltz. It, it culminates in this joyous celebration of, of community. We see it in a number like Making Flippy Floppy, where Demi showcases the entire stage and groups of performers. And there's scarcely a shot of an individual to be found in that number. It's all just so intentional. And on top of it, the music is incredible as well. To your point about Demi, and and yes, this stopped making sense my number one to your point about Demi's uh, presence here as a director you know looking up what I wrote uh, when I reviewed it I said while a strong pair of directorial hands can be a good thing not getting in the way requires a certain artfulness as well and I think that's exactly the balance that that Demi strikes this is one Adam if people are going to theaters to see it I hope we can take some credit for it because we've been talking a ton about this this movie i mean we mentioned some of these but we did it as uh, part of our eight from 84 series that was in 2020 we did in 2017 our top five films of 84 you had it at number three i had it at number two and then it showed up on both of our top five jonathan demi moments lists when we honored the director after his passing that was 2017 so if listeners want more on this movie, they can go to any of those conversations. Interestingly, I think of this as Demi, going back to what you were just talking about, Demi establishing David Byrne as the auteur and not just, you know, this inspired composer of these really manic, but also melodic new wave pop songs, but an inventive installation artist and I think a stage presence you can only call alarming. (laughs) And perhaps that's, you know, never more so than when he dons that big suit for Girlfriend is Better. So you've heard enough from me in recent years on Stop Making Sense. Uh, I'm going to give one more thought from Criterion curator Ashley Clark. Ashley wrote about this 
after seeing it recently in its re-release. So he's one of those folks who went and checked it out uh, on Twitter slash X. Ashley is underscore Ash underscore Clark. I've seen Stop Making Sense a million times, but never on a screen as big as the BAM Brooklyn Harvey. It's no newsflash to call it one of the best concert films ever made, but in all its lavish drama and escalating tension writ so large, you can remove that concert qualifier. So yeah, obviously, I agree. This thing just breaks the boundaries of the music documentary in many ways. At the same time, it's the best one I've ever seen. So it's my number one. Those are our top five music documentaries. I know I've got a few honorable mentions. I'll set you up with a couple picks from listeners. Josh, Jared in Astoria, New York City, wrote in and said, this is Guar. I loved this documentary. It made me weep uncontrollably, which is probably why I loved it. If you're a Guar fan, and Josh, I know you are, you probably already saw this. If you're not a Guar fan, but you're Guar adjacent, comics, horror, wrestling, punk, and metal, you should see this. If you're not into any of that stuff, but you want an incredible documentary about art and friendship, you should see this. Thank you, Jared, for that recommendation. He says it's available on Shudder. Not sure where else. And then we got this from Lynn Brown, who is a sustainer for WJCT 89.9 in Jacksonville, where David Luckin and Matt Shaw do a whole lot for music. Shout out, David and Matt. My hope for your show on music documentaries would include Standing in the Shadows of Motown, 20 Feet from Stardom, Searching for Sugar Man, and Summer of Soul. Each documentary is an excellent representation of some of the unsung artists who created the soundtrack of my life and many others. All docs I've seen, all good ones. Of course, Summer of Soul made your list an honorable mention for me. I also really did go for Searching for Sugar Man when that documentary was released. What about you, Josh? Any other titles that you want to sneak in? Yeah, I'll hit you with three quick ones, all recent ones, but Beyonce's Homecoming, you know, watching that on Netflix, that's pretty much why I was convinced we had to put out the cash and catch her Renaissance tour this summer. Uh, Miss Sharon Jones is from 2015, a documentary from Barbara Koppel about the career and the cancer struggles of the now late soul singer. And speaking of Jonathan Demme, a nice chaser for Stop Making Sense. When you get home, check out his 2016 doc, Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids. Quite good. I love this genre, so... Indulge me here for a second with a few titles. The Decline of Western Civilization Part 2, The Metal Years, came out in 1988. And I'm happy to see, in looking at a lot of lists, ranks quite highly, and people look back on it quite fondly, I think appropriately so, as someone who, at the time it was released, was very much trying to emulate the hair metal artists that were depicted in this film, despite the fact that it's really a cautionary tale or on some level is a cautionary tale about their excess and self-destructiveness. Of course, I didn't get any of that when I was a kid who wanted to grow my hair out and wear makeup like them. But I do recommend that film. Scorsese, of course, is someone who's made some other really good music documentaries. George Harrison, Living in the Material World, the Bob Dylan Rolling Thunder review back in 2019. In 2005, No Direction Home, tie it back to Dylan and the band and The Last Waltz. In No Direction Home, that's where you can see the footage of the guy yelling Judas, that infamous Manchester show with the band, then known as the Hawks, backing up Dylan. Brett Morgan, of course, has made a couple really good ones in the past seven to eight years in Cobain, Montage of Heck, and the David Bowie documentary from last year, Moon Age Daydream. You got to talk about the Maisels in Gimme Shelter. I love Todd Haynes' Velvet Underground doc that came out a few years ago. 
LCD Sound Systems version, I guess, of The Last Waltz, Shut Up and Play the Hits. And if you haven't watched The History of the Eagles on Netflix, I don't I don't know what you're doing. I don't care how you feel about the Eagles. Watch The History of the Eagles and Metallica, Some Kind of Monster. That also is a fascinating document of that group trying to record an album while they're completely disintegrating as egos and friends within that group. And they've got their therapist sitting there quite notoriously, not only trying to help manage all that tension, but also suggesting song lyrics, Josh. I've heard a lot of support for that one, actually. Saw that one come up in social media quite a bit. Again, those are our top five music documentaries. We would love to hear your picks or any other comments about the show. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. That is our show. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. And yeah, I am also on Blue Sky. We'll see what happens there. Threads. Heck, I even started an Instagram account. It is all chaos. Larson on Film. The current Film Spotting poll has us looking ahead to one of Adam's most anticipated films of the year, John Carney's Flora and Son. We're asking, what's your favorite Carney? Once, Sing Street, or Begin Again? Vote now at filmspotting.net. For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Film Spotting is listener-supported. You can support us by joining the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as five bucks a month, you can listen to the show early and ad-free. You'll also get a weekly newsletter, monthly bonus shows, and access to the entire Film Spotting archive. We've already touched on a few episodes you can find in that archive. Here are a few others. 684, our top five classic rock scenes with Stephen Hyden, the great music critic and author. Episode 614, top five musical numbers. You were gone for that one, Josh. I brought on Michael Phillips and guest Desiree Garcia, who's a co-star in the film Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench. And you can go way back. I don't suggest that you really do. But you can go way back to episode 124 as part of our documentary marathon, Sam, then co-host Sam, and I filling in some blind spots that included a discussion, probably about a seven-minute one of D.A. Pennebaker's Don't Look Back. I probably spent more than seven minutes on it just making it my number three pick. That's filmspottingfamily.com. Streaming, you can see Cassandro starring Gail Garcia Bernal as the, quote, Liberace of Lucha Libre. It's the narrative feature debut of doc filmmaker Roger Ross Williams, who made Life Animated. That's on Amazon Prime. Have you heard that Stop Making Sense is being re-released? You can see that. You can also see Waiting for the Light to Change, a feature debut from director Lynn Tran. It debuted at Slamdance. Mariah Gates, our friend and occasional guest host, says it's a sort of mumblecore big chill, but wholly original in its emotional honesty and rawness. Give Lynn Tran whatever budget she wants for her next film. I am eager to see it. Wide, Josh, they're the team that gets called when all other options are off the table. The Expendables. The Expendables with a four in it instead of an A. I think that's, that's how you have to say it, actually. The Expendables real. with a four instead of an A. This is the worst one yet. It's a little clunky. I'm not going to lie. Jason Statham, <laughs> the film itself is probably a little clunky, too. Jason Statham, Sly Stallone, 50 Cent, Dolph Lundgren, Tony Jaa, and Andy Garcia? Oh, yeah. That, that, that is, is that a true? little curious. I think Sam just made that up to see if I was paying attention. <laughs> also, in wide release, you can see It Lives Inside. An Indian-American teen struggling with her cultural identity releases a demonic entity that feeds on her loneliness. As we said next week, we do plan to talk about Flora and Son. Our Wes Anderson plans got upended 
We're not sure what else we're going to get to, if anything. If you have any thoughts, we'll always listen. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempadar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.